God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 7 as we continue uh, our study through uh, the book of Romans, uh, Paul's magisterial uh, letter lodged right here in the New Testament. Uh, please turn to Romans chapter 7 this morning. Uh, we will be looking in particular at verse 6. Uh, last week, of course, we looked at verses 1 through 6 uh, as a whole, and we will look at verse 6 in particular uh, this morning. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and all-sufficient word. Romans chapter 7 and verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that even as now we submit ourselves under the preaching of your word, that we would, by your grace, all of us in this room, hear it, believe it, and respond to it by grace through faith, that we would see Christ in the text, that we would rest our faith in him alone for our salvation, and have a proper understanding of the law. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Seated. <clears throat> I want to begin with a question. Do you believe in the new way of the Spirit? Do you believe in the new way of the Spirit? That which the Apostle Paul speaks of here in our text for this morning. George Whitfield believed it. George Whitfield believed it. He was an evangelist, mightily used of God during the 1730s and 40s, a period that historians called the Great Awakening or the First Great Awakening. Other important figures of that period, of course, were men like John Wesley and Charles Wesley and Jonathan Edwards. George Whitfield was ordained as an Anglican priest in Oxford, England at Christ Church Cathedral. On the occasion of his ordination, as he knelt down, the bishop laid uh, his hands upon him to set him apart for ministry. And the bishop prayed that the Holy Spirit would fill and empower the young Whitfield to be a, quote, faithful dispenser of the Word of God and of his holy sacraments. That's why we have the language of minister of word and sacrament. It's what a minister is called to be and, and to do, to be a dispenser of the Word of God and of Christ's holy sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Well, Whitfield thereafter spent his life proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ in pulpits and also out in the fields. He became unpopular in many quarters of the established church because of his bold preaching on the new birth in particular. Now, Whitfield is a complex figure. If you've ever studied the life of Whitfield, you'll know uh, that he was a complex figure. But so many were offended at his preaching of the new birth. You see, many ministers in his day were preaching moralism. They were preaching moralism rather than the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. In other words, 
God's done his part. Now you must do your part. And maybe one day you'll be accepted by God and be allowed into heaven. This is the kind of moralism that was being taught in the pulpits of his day. Whitfield, however, rightly proclaimed that a person must be born again by the Holy Spirit in order to inherit the kingdom of God. And when a person is born again, there is new life, a new spiritual impulse, a new standing with God, a new perspective, a new understanding, a new direction, and a new master. And, as our text says, a new way of living in the Spirit, a new way of the Spirit, as Paul mentions in our text. Indeed, when the Spirit causes us to be born again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, when He causes us to be born again and brings us into spiritual union with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, everything changes. Nothing stays the same. It doesn't mean that Everything in your life is immediately the way it ought to be. No, absolutely not. But things change. Perspective changes. There's a new spiritual impulse given by the Spirit to serve and to love God. He begins a good work of transformation in us and will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's what God does. Sadly, some in his communion and the Anglican church of his middle 18th century days, didn't like this biblical message. And it called into question the salvation of carnal church members who wanted heaven apart from repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Whitfield's unpopularity with many Church of England clergy gave rise to his unconventional but electric outdoor preaching. It said that he would go and preach in the fields near the workers who worked down in the mines. And, and as they came out of the mines, he would be there preaching, and there would be hundreds, sometimes thousands of them with, with streams, uh, uh, tears going down their black faces because of the love of God that was being proclaimed to them by George Whitfield. Many were born again by the Spirit under his ministry. I know that this would be true of our own day, a spiritual awakening. Interestingly, Whitfield visited Colonial Charleston on many occasions. In the summer of 1939, he preached downtown at the French Huguenot Church. He also preached on James Island and all around the Low Country. On Saturday, July 12, 1739, he quote in his journal, he quote, went over the water, that is, over the Cooper River to Mount Pleasant, and he preached at Christ Church Anglican. And during this visit to Charleston, he wrote <clears throat> the following words in his journal. Quote, Glory be to his holy name. Dagon seems daily to fall before the ark. A lasting impression, I am persuaded, is made on many hearts. And God, I believe, will yet show that he hath many people in Charleston and the countries round about. Expression of hope in Whitfield's journey, a journal rather, is over 250 years old. And yet it is still pertinent for today, isn't it? May it be our hope and prayer too that many Dagons would fall and crumble in our own hearts 
and in our beloved Charleston, and that God would indeed show that he has many people in Charleston and throughout the surrounding countries, that is, surrounding towns in the low country, and will release many from captivity to the law and its fruit of death, as Paul describes it, so that they may be wed to Christ and live in the newness of the Spirit. Amen? To live in the newness of the Spirit. Of course, the message that Whitfield preached is the same one that the Apostle Paul preached. Indeed, the sure hope of salvation in Christ is what Paul has been explaining all throughout the book of Romans, and we've been there for 52, now 53 weeks. You'll remember that we began unpacking chapter 7 last week, looking at the first six verses. I thought it would be important to spend a little more time in verse 6, especially here because this verse so powerfully contrasts the two paths that are lived by everyone in the world. There's no third way. Progressivism and theological liberalism come when a third way is made. There is no third way. There is only in Christ and outside of Christ. There is only the way of the flesh and the way of the spirit. There is only darkness and light. There are no fences. Are you in Christ? Well, sort of. There is no sort of. There's this new way of the Spirit and this old way of the letter. The old way according to the law and the flesh, which leads to death, and the new way according to grace and the Spirit, which leads to eternal life. It's the new way of the Spirit that I want us to get a real good understanding of, a better understanding of this morning. Well, I've provided a brief outline for you on page 11 of your bulletins if you would like to follow along there and if you are prone to taking a few notes, there's room for you uh, to do that. And you'll see the first point there is that in Christ, we've been released from the law. We have been released from the law. You remember from last week that Paul begins this section with an illustration. It's an illustration to reinforce what he's been teaching in chapters 5 and 6, namely that believers are no longer under the dominion of the law and of sin but are under the dominion of Christ and His free grace. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We are joyfully and willingly enslaved to Christ by grace through faith. He is our master. He is our husband. And He no longer is the law and its impossible demands our master, our husband, as it were. No, by God's grace and spirit, we have died to the law and have been wed to Christ, a much better master. In union with Christ, we are no longer in union with the law and its crushing demands for salvation. No, Christ is our mediator, obeyed the law's demands and requirements perfectly on our behalf, and then paid for our sins with his death on the cross. Look with me again at verses 1 through 4. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law 
And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now here's the application, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. So that you may belong to another. Now we, we unpacked this last week in some detail But the way I like to describe it is, which master do you want to wake up to every morning? Which master do you want to wake up to every morning? The law, which says you must obey God personally, perfectly, and perpetually in all things in your whole man or in order to receive eternal life or you will perish. That's the first master you wake up to. You must obey in all things, all the time, in order to receive everlasting life. And that master is always there, always reminding you of your guilt. Even, as the Bible says, stirring up sin within you, because we know what we do and we're told not to do in our sinful flesh. We want to do it. The very thing we're told not to do. Is that the master you'd like to wake up to every morning? You must do this, you must do that, and you must do it flawlessly in order to be received into glory. Or would you like to wake up to the second master who says, I have obeyed the law perfectly in your stead, and I have given my life as an atoning sacrifice for all of your sins, and I love you. And even though you will fight against and struggle with indwelling sin the rest of your life, Know this, I've given you my spirit. You will grow to hate sin more and more and you will grow to love me and my word more and more. And this will be the process of growth and sanctification. And I will love you and be patient with you and you can boldly approach the throne of grace through my blood and righteousness. Your place is with God now. You are no longer condemned. You have peace with God. Which master you want to wake up to in the morning? And let me ask you this. Which master are you waking up to in the morning? Are you living with fear and guilt? Because you know in your heart of hearts that you are failing to keep the law that God has given to you. Your conscience afflicts you. Or are you in Christ by grace through faith forgiven of your sin? These verses are so precious. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Again, Robert Mounts put it this way, quote, as a woman whose husband has died is free to marry another, so also are believers since they have died to the law free to belong to Christ free to belong to Christ. What does it mean to have died to the law? It means to have died to its compulsory demands for eternal life. That's what it means. No longer is perfect and personal obedience to the law our only pathway to heaven, which is an impossible pathway. Through Christ's death, we have died to the law in that sense and are now free to belong to Jesus. No longer... Are we under the authority and power and impossible demands of the first husband, the law? We are now married to Christ. 
a loving, gentle, and merciful Savior who paid for your redemption. Glory. No longer are we married to the law, which is an impossible husband. We are married to Christ. The husband who gave his life for us. and Who lives for us. Even now and prays for us. The first husband, the law, demanded perfect righteousness from us. A righteousness we don't possess. The second husband, Jesus, gave us his perfect righteousness as a free gift. The first husband, the law, condemned us for our utter failure to obey its requirements. The second husband, Christ, was condemned in our stead for our sins on Calvary to save us from what our sins deserve. The first husband, the law, stirred up rebellion and sin within us. Indeed, as it says in verse 5, our sinful passions are aroused by the law. But the second husband, our Lord Jesus, gave us his spirit to quell this rebellion against God and instead create a new heart that joyfully submits to God in ever-increasing measure over the course of our lives. The first husband, the law, declares us guilty and without hope. The second husband, Jesus, declares us justified and with sure hope. Amen. What a Savior. We could go on with these contrasts. We could go on. They're all over the Bible. They're all over the book of Romans. We saw last week how many contrasts there are that Paul is setting up to help us understand that the law cannot save us. The law cannot justify us. The law cannot, now listen, sanctify us either. On its own, the law is powerless to save or to sanctify. John Newton said it well. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought our souls to God. Morning, did you hear the thunder? Did you hear the thunder? It was, it was going for like an hour. And I thought, that's like the law. Thundering forth. You must obey. You must obey in order to have eternal life. Your obedience must be perfect. Thundering forth. But that thunder is hushed. The death of Christ. For our sins on Calvary. So that's the first point. To be a Christian is to be released from slavish captivity to the law and all of its demands for eternal life. We've died to the law through the death of Christ and are thus given to another, the one who rose again from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God, the Bible says. Now later, we're going to consider again, because it's so important to make this point, that the law still plays an important function in the life of Christian believers. Some will emphasize everything I have just said without ever mentioning that the law actually still plays an important role in the life of Christians. We're going to consider that in a few minutes. But it is never meant to be that which saves us or on its own sanctifies us. No, we must have God's grace and spirit. We were, verse 5 states, living in the flesh. Our sinful passions aroused by the law at work in our members to bear the fruit of death. But now... By God's grace, we are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. We are now, dear ones, serving 
in Christ in the new way of the Spirit. That's the phrase, the biblical phrase that Paul uses. I want us to get into our heads. We live in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way according to the letter or the written law as it is understood to be that which calls us to obey it perfectly. Serving in the new way of the Spirit. This is our second point this morning. Look at me again at verse 6. Look at me again at verse 6. But now, but now, we are released from the law. We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The first thing I think that's important for us to consider as we think of the new way of the Spirit is the new birth the new birth of the Spirit. Something, sadly, that's just not emphasized very much uh, anymore. The new birth. You must be born again. The first words we must highlight are these two beautiful Pauline words, but now. They underscore the contrast, again, of who we once were and who we are now in Christ. You were dead in Adam, but now you are alive in Christ. You were enslaved to sin, but now you are free in Christ, uh, enslaved to him. You You were condemned in your sin, but now you are justified through faith in Christ. You were under the law, but now you are under God's grace. This but now, however, does not happen apart from the supernatural work of God in the new birth. In the new birth. There isn't a new way of the Spirit apart from regeneration. One must be born again. Let me say this again. There is no new way of the Spirit apart from being born again by the Spirit. This is the message of Jesus for Nicodemus in John 3, 1 through 16. Look with me there. If you have your Bible, turn with me to John 3 and verses 1 through 16. Jesus is meeting with Nicodemus says there in verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen. Dear ones, in order to walk in the new way of the Spirit, a way of life, 
and not according to the old way of the law, the way of death, a person must be born again. There is no new way of the Spirit for the person without the new birth of the Spirit. It's important to understand that Christianity, please hear this, please hear this, it's so important to understand that Christianity is first and foremost a supernatural religion. So much of modern evangelicalism has lacked the proclamation of supernaturalism. That is, that God gives new hearts and transforms lives by the power of his Holy Spirit. John Calvin was called the theologian of the Spirit. Some people think he was a cold, dry, crusty theologian from the 16th century in freezing Geneva, Switzerland. He was called the theologian of the Holy Spirit because he taught the person and work of the Holy Spirit in just about every theological discipline he taught. We are in a supernatural religion. Christianity trumps salvation through the new birth, through union with Jesus Christ. What happens when a person who is dead and depraved in their sin is by God's grace brought into union with the living, resurrected, and exalted Christ? A new birth happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we in the deadness of our sin are brought into union with Christ by the Spirit of God, something supernatural is happening there. We can't do it on our own. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We believe in supernaturalism. We shouldn't be embarrassed by that. We believe in miracles, amen? Not that they happen, you know, every five minutes. But God does things supernaturally. He, he transforms lives. He does glorious things and miraculous things. And so we... Trust him. Too often these days, the Christian faith is viewed simply in terms of personal improvement, self-improvement, or outward moral refinement, or philanthropy, or social reform. That's a big one we're hearing about a lot these days. That the church exists to reform the culture. Social reform. All of these activities don't require the supernatural. But properly understood, biblically understood, there is no true Christianity, there is no salvation apart from the supernatural work of God in our lives by His Holy Spirit and Word. The vital point to understand if we're going to understand the new way of the Spirit mentioned by Paul in verse 6. But first, let's consider the antithesis of the new way of the Spirit, namely the old way of the written code. What is Paul speaking up here in verse 6, the old way of the written code, or as some of your versions may say, the letter. Notice again with me the contrast stated in verse 6. Look there with me. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The consequence of us being released from the law released from captivity to the law and all of its crushing demands for eternal life and, and being given to Christ, being then wed to Him and the salvation we have in Him, there's a consequence and an implication of that union and it's called walking in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old way according to the written code. 
What is this written code or letter? Well, it's the moral law, of course. It's the moral law written by the hand of God on tablets of stone and given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The moral law is that which God reveals to mankind and requires of mankind. It's the moral law that he reveals to mankind and requires of mankind. Our larger catechism gives an excellent explanation, a definition of the moral law. What is the moral law? This is question 93 in the larger catechism, if you'd like to go to look at it again later. What is the moral law? The moral law is the declaration of the will of God to mankind, directing and binding everyone to personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity and obedience thereunto, in the frame and disposition of the whole man, soul, and body, and in performance of all those duties of holiness and righteousness which he oweth to God and man, promising life upon the fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of it. There's the moral law given to us. We owe God perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. We owe it to our neighbor. And that is the giving of the moral law. That's the law that we, apart from Christ, must obey perfectly to have eternal life. But of course, we are fallen, guilty, and depraved in sin. We fall short of God's glory. Adam rebelled in the garden and introduced sin into the world. Romans 5, we were born with the sin of Adam, and we ourselves sin every single day. And our minds, our hearts, our wills, our affections, every part of us is tainted by this sin. So God gave the law to Moses and Israel, not so that they would gain salvation from obedience to that law, but so that it would expose their sin and their need for mercy their need for grace, their need for a Messiah. It was always the promise and the realization of the promise, Jesus Christ, that would save sinners, not Israel's or our failed attempts at obeying that law. With this in mind, then, what is the old way of the written code that Paul mentions? Well, the great 20th century Welsh preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, provides a helpful description of what it means to live in the flesh according to the written code, the way we shouldn't be living anymore if we're in Christ. Lloyd-Jones says it is, quote, an attempt at conformity to the written law. An attempt at conformity, is apart from Christ, an attempt at conformity to the written law, that is, apart from faith in Christ. It is an attempt to obey God's law unto everlasting life. That's what it means to live in the old way, according to the written code. It is a striving to have a right standing with God through obedience to the law. But remember that obedience must be personal, perfect, and perpetual in the whole man, according to God's commands. Dear ones, in our sinful, fallen condition, that is impossible. It's why legalistic preaching is abusive from pulpit. Because it is being preached to you, you must obey this law as God intended or you will go to hell. Such teaching is wicked. It's an attack on the gospel. It's saying that Christ is not enough, that what he did is incomplete and that we must complete it. And any religion, whether Catholic or Protestant, 
that declares that there is something else to do to gain salvation rather than salvation being complete in Christ, then those teachings are leading people astray. We learned how sinful people are from Romans 1.18 to 3.20. All people, both Jews and Gentiles, all of us in this room are sinners. But all hope is not lost. Why? Why is all hope not lost? Because a righteousness has been revealed apart from the law. Apart from our failed attempts of obedience to the law. It's a righteousness that does not come from within us. It comes from outside of us. Give to us. And what is this righteousness? It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Dear ones, he was born of a virgin. And in his 33 years, he obeyed the moral law personally, perfectly, and perpetually in order that he would be that righteous substitute for you and me on the cross at Calvary. He obeyed the requirements of the law, and then as a perfect lawkeeper, gave his life on Calvary. He bore our sin on Calvary. He bore God's wrath for our sin on Calvary. We are not saved by the law or through the law, and the law was never given to us in order to save us. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ, our perfect mediator and savior. Dear ones, if you understand these concepts we're dealing with just here in these last 30 minutes, you will understand the book of Galatians. You will understand the book of Ephesians. You will understand large sways of the New Testament, understanding why God did not give us the law to save us, but to show us our sin and to direct our hearts outside of ourselves to a Savior, namely Jesus Christ the Lord, the risen one. And it is through the new birth, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are united to Jesus who lived and died and rose again for us. It is through the gift of faith that we receive Jesus and all the benefits of salvation. What are those benefits? Regeneration, being born again. Forgiveness, righteousness, justification, adoption, sanctification, eternal life. Our old master, our old husband, the law is powerless to give us these things. We are unable to attain them through our obedience. But through Christ and in Christ, we receive it all. We receive it all. This salvation doesn't just give us a new status with God, but a new way of life in him and in his I say that again. This new, this salvation doesn't give us simply a new status with God, but a new way of life and living before the face of God that is in his spirit, this new way of the spirit. This is what Paul, again, is talking about in verse 6. Look there with me again. Chapter 7, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We 
live our Christian lives in the freedom of gospel grace, knowing that we are forgiven, knowing that God is our Father. He's our Abba Father. He loves us with an everlasting love. Christ has paid for our sins with His precious blood, and He's given us His Spirit so that we would walk in His Spirit and no longer in the flesh, using our members for the sake of righteousness and no longer for the sake of unrighteousness. This is the Christian life. There are implications to our life in Christ. It's not just I've got my fire insurance in my back pocket and I don't think about things much until there's a hard time in my life in terms of my relationship with the Lord. No, it's a, a new life, a, a, a life where there's, there are new impulses and new perspectives and, and growth in grace and, and new affections. And these things are what God does within the lives of His people for His own glory. This is the new way of the Spirit. We have been united to Christ by grace, by the new birth, and in Christ we live in the new way of the Spirit. Now, this living in the Spirit theme or subject is Romans chapter 8, the next chapter, which many preachers and theologians throughout the centuries believe is maybe the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. There we will learn what it means to live life in the Spirit in a very uh, wonderful and, and deep way as we study that chapter. This new way, of course, is in contrast with the old way. It's a new way that's empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit and that leads to the fruit of grateful and growing obedience. That's what Paul states in verse 4, that we've been set free from the law and given to Christ in order that we may bear fruit for God. Notice the language, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Look with me real quick at Romans 6 and verse 4. You'll see the same kind of language. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in, what? Newness of life. Newness of life. This is the language Paul uses all over the Bible in his, in his epistles. We walk in the newness of life. The, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The old has gone. The old way, the old dominion of sin, the old master is gone. The new has come. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. Wonderful language. We are saved from God's wrath. Yes, but we are also saved unto a life of fruit-bearing, growing holiness, and good works. Remember Titus chapter 2 from last week. We have been saved unto good works for the glory of God. Look with me at Galatians 5, 16 through 26 as we bring this to a close. Galatians 5, 16 through 26. Veritable commentary on walking in the newness of the Spirit. But I say, verse 16, Galatians 5, 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Under the law as in what we have been discussing. Now the works of the flesh are evident. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is, those who practice these things and are not in Christ, because clearly the evidence is there that they're not in Christ. They're practicing and living with these kinds of sins in their, their lives, and they're putting their hope that somehow the law will save them. Somehow uh, the little things that they've done or the little ways they've tried to make up for sin will do and will, will meet the requirements of the law when they don't. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Another text I will just mention, you can jot it down and look it up later, is 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 6. And there, Paul says that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life in verse 6. The letter kills. But the Spirit gives. You want, you want the law as your master? The law is a killer as it concerns our salvation. But the Spirit brings life. Now, the first application point is this. Love the law, but do not seek salvation through the law. Love the law, but don't seek salvation through the law. The law was never meant to save you. So don't look at it in that function, ever. Look to Christ for your salvation. But David and other psalmists say things like this, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. As Christians, we recognize the proper function of the law. The proper function of the law, again, is not to save us, but the proper function of the law is in our lives to expose our sin, to show us our sin, and to be a guide for the Christian life. The law is a field manual. You say, okay, now I'm a Christian. What am I supposed to do? How, how do I please God? Here's the law. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's look at the moral law and the Ten Commandments. Let's unpack that and see how it teaches us how we are to live as Christians. Look at Romans 12 through 16 and all the imperatives for the Christian life. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 through, through chapter 6, all the imperatives there, which are, of course, given on the heels of all the indicatives of who God is and how he has saved us. We have been saved from God's wrath, but unto a life of growing holiness. How do we know how to live a holy life? Growing holiness, we learn from God's law. It's it's, it's as one friend of mine once said, when the law is given to us by Moses, that law, it kills. It kills. But when the law is given to us by our Savior, Jesus Christ, when we are in him, he hands us this law with his nail-scarred hands and says, here is the way to live. Here is the way to please me. The second point is look to Christ as the only way of salvation. There is no salvation under any name but the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one true and living Savior. Put your hope and trust in him. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you forgiveness. I will give you mercy. Come to me. 
And thirdly, dear ones, walk in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The clear application of this text. Let us walk in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This new birth and this new way of the Spirit was the message of George Whitfield in the 18th century and countless Christians throughout the ages because it was and is the divinely inspired message, message of Paul and because it was and is the message of Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this glorious contrast between the old written code the old master, the old husband, and the new way of the Spirit, and the one to whom we've been given, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to live, Lord, with the gospel in mind, never looking to the law for justification or sanctification, but purely as a guide for the Christian life to honor and to glorify you, the one who has paid for our redemption in full. We pray this in Jesus' name.